one of the strengths of the motivation of a teacher is that they need to verify and validate. They, they don't take things at face value. Um, they want to check the sources. They want to check the figures. They want to make sure that, that everything lines up. reasons that we've talked about already but I want to expand on for doing this exercise of going through these gifts you know the one thing is I think that we should understand ourselves um, but we should also uh, I, I, I want us to try to understand each other so like if as we're listening to these explanation of these gifts um, you know the 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 main goal is that when we talk about the gift that's most relevant to you, that you're like, oh, okay, I can see that about myself, and I need to learn to exercise this in the right way and avoid the mistakes and pitfalls of it. But, but it's also that we would learn to recognize the value that, we, that other people in the body are, so that we learn to recognize, hey, that's not my gift, but here's why it's really useful that there are people not like me. But more than that, um, I think... If, if these are all, like we've said, if these are all central motivations of Jesus himself, if we can find Christ in each of these gifts, then uh, we want to learn how to practice them. So, so maybe, I'm, maybe I'm as far as I can get on the spectrum from being a teacher or a server. Uh, but I want to learn how to how to utilize those gifts in whatever capacity I can, because there's times, you know, it, as we've talked about these things, you know, prophecy being motivated by truth, that's not just for prophets. Everybody has to exercise that at, at certain points in their life. You have to prioritize truth of other things. Service is such a central notion to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, that whether or not you have the gift of service, you still have times in your life when you need to apply the gift of service, when you need to act like a servant. And similar with teaching and mercy and all these things, they're things that we have to learn how to utilize. And so if I'm not particularly prone to service, that's not a key motivation in my life. When I look at people in my body who are servers, I can emulate the way that they act and the way that they behave when I know that that's an appropriate thing to do. Today, um, we're on our, th actually this is our fourth message, but our third gift uh, and what I titled this one is The Ones That Ask Why. It's the teachers. So why don't we start um, with our redundant reading of Romans chapter 12. And we'll start in uh, verse 4. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching. Uh, the wording's kind of funny here. I don't know what other translations do with that, but we've, I think we've mentioned already this wait on prophecy, wait on ministry, or teaching on teaching. That just means be occupied doing that thing that you're given a gift to do. So what is what is um, what do we want to learn about teachers today? I called this the ones that ask why because, um, as we'll see, we're going to look kind of closely at Acts in this in this particular message because um, Acts is the foundation of the church, and when we when we get there, we're going to be looking at how the church is founded and the way that the church is having to be founded is on these companion gifts of prophets and teachers. And that's not insignificant. The, I always think of it this way. The, the prophets are the ones that say what to do, and the teachers are the ones that say why you should do it. So the what people and the why people, the teachers are the why people. What I mean by that is why does this make sense? Why is it a good thing to do? Why does, why does the world work the way that it does? Why are we, you know, whatever the question is, the why question for everything that we're encountering in our spiritual lives and, and indeed even in the physical world, 
teachers are always exploring that question. Let's 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 jump right into Acts, and we're going to go to Acts chapter eleven, and I'm going to highlight quickly a, a bunch of texts that show how central teaching is. Uh, we could have done this with Jesus too, you know. Jesus is called Rabbi in several occasions. That means Master, Teacher, kind of interchangeably. Um, but there's certainly plenty of texts that we could have gone to to establish that Jesus is most definitely a teacher. He he's expounding to people the why of the scriptures, the why of the Messiah, the why of 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 his father, the why of what it means in his ministry. Jesus is certainly a teacher expounding the scriptures. But that's that should be a foregone conclusion. So let's look at the church. Acts chapter 11 in verse 26. Let's back up a little bit, little bit. Uh, in 22. The tidings of these things came into the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch, who when he came and had seen the grace of God was glad and exhorted them all, that with purpose of heart they, should, they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added to the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Teaching uh, the scriptures and principles of truth is literally as old as the church. As long as there's been Christians, Christians have been teaching from the scriptures about why people should believe what they believe, why they should listen to the scriptures, why they should believe that Jesus is the Messiah, why these things were prophesied before time, and why we can find a reason for, for believing these things. So it's, it goes all the way back. It's one of the very first ministries that's happening in the church. If you skip over to... Um, that's interesting to me because... <coughs> it means that rationale is a part of the framework for... We, we, we so very often couch Christianity in the terms of faith. And, and with all the misnomer that happens with the word faith... Um, in English, uh, it's interesting. It's an interesting offset to the idea that that Christianity is just a belief structure. That is just something like like the way that you believe the Easter Bunny or believe uh, whatever. That Christianity is just a belief. It's not. It's something that's rooted in a worldview, rooted in a rationale, rooted in an exegesis of the Scriptures, rooted in a why, rooted in an explanation from teachers about why we believe the things that we believe. It's, it's literally how the churches begin. If you flip over just a couple chapters into Acts chapter 13, the beginning of this chapter says, Now there were in the church that was in Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, it was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and it goes on to list them. And this is the calling of the missionary journey, in, in Antioch, the first sending out of apostles. And here in the church, the church is still organized at this stage. So they're first called Christians at Antioch. This is one of our, you know, outside of Jerusalem, one of our pinnacle early churches. And when the church is still under this like rudimentary teacher-prophet phase of church development, they're sending out their first apostles. And that's, um, that goes to show again how central teaching is in this in the establishment of the church. It's in every couple chapters here. If we go over to Acts 15, uh, it ha- comes up quite a few times in Acts 15. Acts 15 is a chapter with the Jerusalem Council. But if we zoom in here at the end of the Jerusalem Council, um, we go back to Antioch again. 
in verse 30. So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle, which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. And Judas and Silas, being prophets also themselves, exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. And after they had tarried their space, they were let go in peace for the brethren unto the apostles. Notwithstanding, it pleased Silas to abide there still. Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. These meetings abounded with these teachings from these teachers and these preachings from these prophets. In Acts chapter 18, we find something again. In Acts chapter 18, verse 11, it says, uh, this, is, this is Paul in Corinth. It says that he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This teaching ministry is central to communicating truths to people, whether those are those are reasons, evangelistic reasons to get people to believe or confirming the church or helping establish the church. Teaching is how these, these things are communicated. Same chapter in the 24th verse. A Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much, which he had which had believed through grace, for he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Now, this is, this is a neat little story that we get preserved for us, that, that Aquila and Priscilla are recognizing, recruiting, and training a teacher for the church. They see a man who is zealous for the scriptures, who's able to communicate those truths well, and they take him under their wing and they say, let us show you how to, let, let us show you a more complete, a more complete way to, to understand the truth and then send him out to, to continue to convince people and bring him into the faith. So Apollos becomes one of these teachers under the direction of Aquila and Priscilla who show him how to, how to expound the scriptures more, more clearly and more thoroughly. And then one last passage here in Acts, in the end of Acts, in Acts chapter 28. (coughs) It's the very end of Paul's ministry that we have recorded in Acts. Excuse me. Verse 30, it says, And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. So, so this is the whole ministry of Paul is absorbed with this notion of teaching the truth of God to people. He starts there in Antioch. He finishes there in Rome. And it's the last thing that we have about the ministry of Paul is that he was teaching men the things of Christ. If we were, if we zoom forward, you know, into the the epistles, we should expect to see Paul talking a lot about teaching because here we see in Acts the example of how much he's doing that in his in his ministerial life. But but Paul highlights this gift and this calling of teachers in his pastoral epistles repeatedly. He notes that it's one of the things that he he highlights when he says. When he's talking about the body, he says, do all speak in tongues, do all prophesy, do all men teach. There's kind of like this, the easy things to pick out of church life and saying, not everybody does each of these things. They all have their own particular part. And those are very visible parts of the church's ministry. So it's easy for him to grab, you know, prophecy and speaking in tongues and teaching and say, not everybody's doing each one of these. We all have our part to fulfill. So we see there him affirming again how central teaching is in the ministries of the church. 
Ephesians is the same way. In the in the ministerial gifts, which is a whole different list of, of gifts, um, the things that perfect the church, that, that make us into a perfect man, is apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, and shepherds. Those are the five ministries in the church. So... We can see this from Jesus all the way through the New Testament, the centrality of, of teaching as a ministry. So what is that? And, and more specifically for our purposes here today, what is that motivation like? Let me speak about motivations a little bit here again. And I've tried to communicate this before, but I want to I circle back to it. These motivations... Um, I think that all of us have at least one, but I, but what we often find is that there's a couple that are central to a person's identity, and that could be for a few reasons. Maybe it's because maybe it's because of the people that you're close to, or maybe it's just a personality thing, or maybe it's a husband wife thing. But there's usually one major gift and one secondary gift that people ha- find as a motivation, like that they really align themselves with. And again, these motivations are the are what moves you forward as a person like they're they're the thing that that god made you to be about and what is that for a teacher what is the teacher made to be about what's his what moves him forward what compels him or pushes him what's what's he want out of out of um you'd say out of the truth or out of out of life what 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 compels him or her. The motives of a teacher are, you know, they're summed up in this, this why question. The wanting to figure out. The wanting to understand. The needing to get to the bottom of. I, I happen to, uh, this, this is my secondary motivation, is a teacher. And, um, um, I find that I find myself often asking questions um, that unless I'm around other people motivated by teaching, most people don't care about. Like their their particularities or minutiae or details or facts or 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 complex evaluations that many many people that I'm around just literally don't care about. They don't make sense to them. They're not interested in them. Teachers are the people that want to figure that stuff out. They want to dive in as deep as they can into whatever they find interesting. But it's not only that. It's also that they kind of collect like a magnet these these kind of collections of facts and ideas. It just sticks to them. Because they have a mind for it and because they're looking for it, it just kind of pops into their head. Uh, I don't know how many times Erica over the course of our marriage has been like, how do you know that? Why do you know that? I don't know. It just, I heard it somewhere or I read it somewhere. I thought, you know, it just sticks. That's how teachers are. They want to know the long part of the equation. They want to know how to get to the answer. They want to know not just what the answer is, but how do you derive it? What's what's underneath of it? They want to know the significance and where it comes from and the surrounding orbit of 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 ideas that go along with it they want to they want to connect the dots they want to they want to evaluate and turn it around and look at it on all sides they want to know the details they're the askers of questions and they're always digging and wondering and thinking so as we consider this motivation of the teacher it's helpful um We've been using these kind of monikers, these kind of avatars for these particular gifts. And in this uh, analysis, we're going to look at the Apostle Luke as kind of the token teacher. So let's look at, let's consider these 
practical analysis of the strengths and weaknesses of, of the gift of teaching. One of the strengths of the motivation of a teacher is that they need to verify and validate. They, they don't take things at face value. Um, they want to check the sources. They want to check the figures. They want to make sure that, that everything lines up. They need to confirm that statements are reliable and true. They're always asking themselves, somebody makes a premise and they're always saying, well, does that hold water? Does that make sense? Is that reasonable? Um, in in the uh, in the introduction, look over here, Luke. My print cut off, but it's in the it's in the introduction to Luke. He says. Um, For as much, uh, uh, let's just read his whole introduction because there's several things we can pull out of it here. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know of certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. (coughs) If you break down all those little pieces, that's a description of the motivation of a teacher. He's vetting his source, his own credentials, why it matters, how he's going to come to his conclusion, and that it's it's complete. He's a... all these things. They're all part of the motivation of a teacher. That's how teachers think. So that's the strength, this need to verify and validate. Remember he says that he's an eyewitness and that these are the things that we all believe. He's verify and, verifying and validating what his source is on this material to Theophilus. <clears throat> so with this attempt to verify and validate things, the weakness is that uh, teachers can become proud of knowledge. N- knowledge can become an idolatry for people who are so keenly interested in it. Knowledge is a key part of the motivation <coughs> of a teacher, and it's not unimportant that Paul, who does plenty of teaching himself, um, he says that knowledge puffs up. So this is a real central warning for people who have the motivation to have knowledge is to be very cognizant of this warning from the apostle who's one of our greatest, one of the greatest Christian teachers ever after Jesus makes this claim about knowledge that there's an inherent danger in the desire for knowledge. That you can, you can use that, that acquisition of knowledge as, as, as an end in of itself. And whenever knowledge becomes the end, the goal, the purpose, then you're going to, the, the, the byproduct of that is going to be pride. It's going to be a confidence that it's not rooted in a Christian identity. It's rooted in self and an ego. And it ends up coming out, not I want to share with you, but I know more than you. It knowledge becomes used as leverage over people instead of a way to lift people up. This is the real temptation of teachers. Case in point, look at the look at the famous teachers of the Reformation. Uh, this isn't in my notes, but if we go back to Proverbs, the 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 warning that corresponds with the seven gifts for the teacher, the one that's the third in line in the six things, yea, seven which the Lord hates, is. Um, is shedding blood. How does it say it? Proverbs chapter 6. Let's look at it. Does it say, feet that are shift swift to shed innocent blood? Uh, just one second here. Yes, here it is. 
Proverbs 6. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him. One, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. Okay, how does that have to do with teachers? This propensity for teachers to make an idol of knowledge and use knowledge to exert force and leverage over people causes them to set up these these like very brutalizing, rigorous uh, institutions. They're, they're literally, in history, some of the most bloodthirsty institutions are those that are set up by teachers. Look at Marx and Engels, you know, and the, and the, the horrible bloodshed that comes from the communist revolutions in the early part of the 20th century. These are teachers. Marx and Engels are teachers. They're, they're men who are about knowledge and analyzing systems and wanting to figure things out. And, and, and that becomes such a leverage point for them to force things that they, they inspire these revolutions that just shed horrible blood. Same thing with the, with the Reformation. Luther and Calvin, the new, two most prominent teachers of the Reformation movement, have these wakes of blood behind them of people who are n- n- not only ostracized and outed through this knowledge that they claim to have, but literally are killed over the premise that they're trying to insert and, 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 and leverage over people in their world. Teaching ideas, if it's not underneath the, the constraints of the Holy Ghost and the control of God, when they're not when they're not yielded in his service, can become brutal, oppressive things. So, it's something to consider. You know, every false teacher is a teacher. He's teaching something. And he's teaching something that people are willing to listen to. That's why he becomes known as a false teacher. The better a teacher he is, the more dangerous a false teacher he is. So this pride that can come along with knowledge is something, I I would put this number one as the warning for anybody with the motivation of a teacher. There's a much smaller version of that warning that teachers can come across, they can present, they can be received or understood to be like socially as proud or obtuse by by overdoing this kind of minutia and detail that nobody cares about. They get overwhelmed. They overwhelm people who are listening to them or, um, or they're just boring. Like teachers have to work on pedagogy. It's, it's the, it's the capacity of a teacher to take in information, to assimilate it and organize it, but to disseminate knowledge means you have to get outside of your own head and think about how other people can learn or can take in the conclusions. And a teacher has a natural tendency to want to share his kind of path of discovery. It's like this very long, protracted, you know, analyses. Like you start here and you go to here and you go to here and you go to here and there's this long trail that leads from an initial idea to a finished conclusion. And most people don't care about that. They just want to know why they should care about the conclusion. But teachers think that way and we have to get out of our our heads and try to... So if, if I'm a teacher and I want to use that for God... The way to do that is to be able to present information in a way that it will get in other people's heads. Well, the way that other people get information in their heads is not the same as the way teachers get information in their heads. So it has to be repackaged and and taught. That's the point. Like, like I feel like the natural skill of a teacher is in the acquisition of knowledge, the, the taking in, the onboarding. That's like the 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 native genius of a person with a motivation of a teacher but but there are many people who can do that who can't get it out very well and this is the skill part of this gifting this is what has to be exercised and 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 practiced and requires kind of a different skill set to be able to take that and put it into other people's hands in a way that it becomes useful so those are things to consider about teachers as well Another strength of, of the gift of teaching is that they vet not only information, but teachers. They're keenly aware of false teachers. They will want to investigate people's qualifications and credibility. 
and they'll usually relate their own qualifications and credibility, why someone should listen to them, because that, that's meaningful to them. Because they're always looking, if somebody tells me something, I'm like, well, how, well, how do you know this or why should I listen to you? That's what teachers often ask themselves. And so when they're trying to present something, they'll often tell people, here's how I know this and here's why you should listen to me. Uh, you see that right there in, that we just read in, in the introduction to Luke, that he, he, he affirms that he's an eyewitness, that he had perfect understanding, and that these are the things that they all believe. Like, those are his qualifications. This is why Theophilus should listen to him. The weakness of this is that credentials can be overemphasized and valued. Uh, not just academic credentials, but whatever passes for credentials in the mind of that person. Obviously, you know, a Harvard degree didn't mean anything to Luke. But, but whatever passes for credentials... In, in somebody's view or, you know, a reputation to be listened to can be overvalued. And the potential problem with that is that, that teachers can miss out on, on revelation. They can miss out on practical wisdom. They can miss out on, on a whole nother uh, workable skill set that doesn't derive from an intellectual process. So there's a lot of people who have practical wisdom who just do things well or do things right because they have innate senses, you know, whether it's, you know, like a prophet. Sometimes a prophet will just do something because God said to. He doesn't have to work out the rationale behind it. He doesn't have to make sense of it. He just, he apprehends that God says to do this, so he does it. Well, that doesn't always work for a teacher, but the teacher can miss the prophet sometimes if he's not trying to pay attention to it, because he doesn't, he doesn't incorporate revelation very well, because that doesn't fit a model. It doesn't fit like just for God to say something to somebody doesn't isn't a d- process that can be derived intellectually. <clears throat> um, he can also be dismissive of people without formal instruction. And 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 this information ecology, uh, it gives teachers the potential to elevate intellect over other spiritual things. It's a real liability. Teachers need balance around them. A strength of teachers is that they use trusted sources. They have these trees of knowledge to establish pathways of vetted and verified sources. Um, in, in my life, that's been especially through patristics. Like these lineages of thought and doctrine and practice for me have been like a source work, a way, a map to navigate how to how to derive uh, concepts that are true. The scriptures work as their own kind of pedigree and, and class of knowledge as well. It's an important way that teachers use to classify and organize teachings into families of ideas and to make associations between ideas and these are connected to that and that's true or that's false and so we can deal with the downstream consequences. These are things that teachers kind of natively do. You see, uh, you see Luke in his telling of, of Paul's journeys that he highlights the praise for the Bereans for conforming Paul's statements with the Old Testament scriptures. Like he's, he's, he's blessing them for, for using a trusted source to check on what they're hearing. That's a very teacher-oriented idea. Uh, Luke himself also relates his writings to other gospel narratives and to the Old Testament generally. The weakness of this is that dependence on established schools of thought and teachers can cause a teacher to give the impression that he is the arbiter of truth. Like he's the one that decides whether something's true or not. And if he decides it's true, it is true. And if he decides it's not, it's not. He's kind of the, the vetter of all these things. And, and it can be very hard for teachers to be dissuaded. It's very hard for them to give people room in their analysis to, to, because it's so self-derived, it's so um, self-conceived that it's hard for them to give room unless someone's uh, unless someone's an established authority to them. It's very hard for them to give room to outside ideas. That that statement isn't quite true. They can get stuck in a rut of their own ideas. That's the right way to say it.
it's also a, 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 a real danger for teachers that they can fail to see the need to bring their intellect under subjection to God. They, I, I meet teachers from time to time who are always trying to <coughs> essentially argue with God. If you can't prove to me how this makes sense, then I'm, I'm not down for this. Is a, a, a real failure of the motivation of a teacher. They get they 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 dive so deep into wanting to understand the ins and outs of something that they get lost in a wasteland of ideas, uh, an ocean of ideas, and it's overwhelming. And they find themselves sinking within their own heads. the The answer to that is is to keep. Teachers aren't always really relationship keyed as well. They're so in their own heads that can be, and this is, I'm obviously talking about extreme teachers, people that are really far on the spectrum, but they can be so into their own heads and thought and thinking that they, they lose some of the relational aspects of, of, of their life and certainly the Christian life. And that relational aspect of my faith, like, not just what is Christianity about, but who is it about? And how does my walk with Christ and my, my subjection of myself to the Father, how does that keep me moored and, and on, a, on a firm foundation that I, can, that I can really analyze the concepts that are important to me without always falling into a well of doubt or suspicion or skepticism? All of these are the pitfalls of the teacher. Excuse me. You know, along those lines, teachers are the ones that often um, they can become they can they can pursue those that skepticism all the way to the bottom where they're they're questioning fundamental Christian truths. You know, they start on some inquiry of trying to figure out whatever, uh, some text or some idea or some doctrine, and it runs them. They ask why and why and why and why so far to the bottom of the barrel that they end up questioning essential Christian truths. And this is a dangerous process for a teacher. When it's unsubmitted, it can actually lead to them becoming a false teacher. It can lead them into the territory of heresy. <clears throat> I think that teachers are the most prone to nihilism. Questioning everything with nothing to stand on leads to uh, very shaky territory. So that need to ground and anchor himself in essential truths, like the things that I know that I know, like that's the framework to work out from as a teacher. It gives you the firm footing. There's another propensity that teachers have because of this in, in, inquest and inquiry in, in knowledge and truth concepts that, that teachers can become kind of petty and quarrelsome over minor details that are not as significant as they think they are. Um, you know, there's a whole phase of church history in the ecumenical councils where people are arguing over very fine pointed definitions of, of words and and you know causing riots and persecutions of the class that doesn't hold to their exact definition of an exact term. And this is the the worst that can come from the gifts of a teacher. You know, if if you get so bent on the uh, it's an inability to prioritize because because for the teacher the knowledge is the value so is mary the theotokos is she the mother of god or is she the mother of jesus well the teachers don't ask themselves how valuable is that premise the only thing that matters is is she or is she not is she the Theotokos or is she not? If she is, then I don't care. If she's not, then I don't care. And 
and literally a war in the church happens over whether or not Mary is the mother of God or the mother of Jesus. And these are the kinds of of cascading consequences that can come from a from teachers out of control. It's a strength of teachers that they're uneasy with subjective truths. Um, they're they're highly motivated to have a comprehensive analysis of things, and so that includes teachers are pretty comfortable with the idea of balance and tension. Like you have this on this side and this on that side, and that can be hard for some people to grasp. But the teachers are pretty good at at seeing how these things tie to each other and make a balance because they're used to complicated analysis. Um, but they don't. They don't care very much for like a feelings-based analysis. That's not a very much use to a teacher. He doesn't care particularly how people feel about things. It's much more about what is than how we feel about it. This is good because because it allows a teacher to to lay things out in a way that's unemotional. That's just that's attempting to be objective or fact-based or or at least textually based, or whatever the case may be. <coughs> but it can also leave a teacher with kind of a sharp tongue on his teaching, or a sharp pen, as the case may be, where he's kind of indifferent to the costs or the implications of his teachings. And it can come across leaving him kind of looking cold and detached. And part of being a good teacher, of using this gift for the values of the church, is, is to be able for the teacher to understand those implications of his ideas, of his teachings. Um, this uncomfortability with subjective things... Uh, it can cause the teacher to ignore or dismiss mystery or miracle or genuine experiences um, that that really are a part of the Christian story and narrative. There are things that that are because because our God is supernatural, because He's um, innovative and creative. There are things that that are hard to to appreciate, discern, and and deduce about him and a teacher can miss out on those things i think you know that's probably why uh, jefferson is a deist as opposed to a proper christian and why he needs to retell the gospel narrative without the miracles of christ he sees value from his teaching mind he sees a value in the moral behavior and the instruction of the teacher jesus but he can't he can't synthesize the supernatural components of the story. They must be false because they don't fit in his construct. And this is something that teachers can do. Uh, teachers, as a strength to them, they, they have a loyalty um, that's, that's pretty unshakable. When they grab a hold of, of a school of thought or a set of ideas or a particular individual teacher that they find valuable and insightful and trustworthy, they will grab a hold of that and become a disciple or devotee to that school. And they're pretty doggedly loyal to that, to those either institutions or persons. Um, once they stake an ideological or doctrinal flag, it's very hard to change their perspective it's interesting that Paul, at the end of his life, is saying, uh, in the midst of his persecutions, only Luke is with me. He's the one guy that's stuck around. The problem with that is that when those associations are based on a false premise, it makes resiliently false teachers. Loyalty also can drive extremity. When you look at when you look at some of the influential teachers of of um, Christian history, the disciples of a particular school of thought usually are more extreme than their teacher. This is true of Melanchthon under Luther. It's true of the Calvinist school. 
um, the, the disciples of a particularly influential teacher usually take that guy's ideas to a farther extreme as his, as his disciples than, than those ideas originally were construed to be. And truth out of balance without these balancing notions, and this is really important for the teacher to collect around him people who think differently, who respond differently, who see differently. We need this balance in our lives to keep ourselves um, on a straight path from getting out of balance and extreme in our ideas and ideologies. Um, <coughs> teachers are systematic. They, um, they're usually very <coughs> ordered in their thought process. <coughs> Excuse me. This is helpful for others to be able to receive truth from him. It's it's Luke in the synoptic of all the synoptics who emphasizes chronology, and and even mentions that he wants to write these things in order. This can, on the negative side, lead to impracticality or being overly analytical. Uh, this s- systematic way that teachers think can can keep them stuck in ideology and not concerned very much with practical outworkings. Like they become so engaged in the ideas and the knowledge and the understanding that the outworking of that becomes less and less meaningful if, if they're not careful. It's easy for a teacher to miss applying the things that he knows. Teachers are fact gatherers. Um, we already mentioned that. They feel almost obligated to collect and share facts in ways that other people don't notice or find significant. Luke is the longest of the accounts, uh, not even including Acts, just Luke. (coughs) is the longest of the synoptics, and he includes the most details. Um, He also emphasizes the completeness of his account. This, this is another one. It's a kind of reiteration of, of a weakness that we already mentioned. But th- this compulsion can lead teachers to to want to share things that other people aren't interested in. They're not good at gauging that other people may or may not be interested in the things that they're sharing. Um. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's that's enough for that. So, so how should teaching work in the church? What we should do is we should be we should be finding and using people who have this set of skills, and they're the ones that should be um, should be working through the knowledge and instruction of the church. They should be. They should be analyzing text and and showing the church how to understand things. Here's the thing that's that's happened, I think, and it's 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 another cautionary tale about the gift of teaching. I feel like the Western Church, probably since the Reformation, maybe even long before, but certainly since the Reformation, has become very, uh, very teacher top heavy. In other words. The central notion that most um, Western Christians use for why they come to a meeting is to hear teaching, uh, and sometimes you know that's that's mixed with um, sometimes it's mixed with with uh, a more exhortation, like in the in the in the late twentieth century, the kind of self help and 
exhorting kind of version of speaking. But before then, for sure, and still a lot today, this teaching has become the central tenet of what the Christian meeting is supposed to be about. And, and that overemphasis has, has done two has made two negative impacts on the Church of Jesus Christ. The one is that that it's flooded us with teaching, so that there's so much abundance of, of teachers under every stripe that it's very difficult to separate good from bad teaching. And second is that it's de-emphasized a lot of very important parts of Christian community. The fellowship of the saints, the, the participation of the Eucharist, confession... But not only that, it's also the case that things like uh, shepherding and counseling. We've built, uh, we've built churches all over the Western world based predominantly on the gift of a teacher, some, some teacher who's good at communicating a truth that people will listen to, and it's lost the heart of the church to shepherd people and to create whole lives. It's just about the dissemination of information. It's become the whole job of the church is disseminated information, especially when you mix the idea of like uh, ask Jesus into your heart and like a, 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 an ideology-based version of salvation. If you believe that Jesus did X, Y, and Z, then you're a Christian. Ask Jesus into your heart and then you're saved. Like all of those things kind of go together. And that's interesting because they all come out of this very teacher-heavy environment of the Reformation. That that whole soul of Western Christianity from the Reformation till now is built all of these structures on teachers. And I, I, I certainly don't want to de-emphasize teaching. It's incredibly important that not everybody has the capacity to, to work through the complicated analysis of, of doctrines of Scripture and teachings and prophecies and details of the things that we should believe and why. But those should be in their proper category. We need to fill out the rest of the church life. We need to be really re-emphasizing, not de-emphasizing teaching, but re-emphasizing the value of shepherds, the value of apostles, the value of evangelists, the value, the value of all these other gifts within the body.